Monica and Victoria, if they would come up and pray for me to get us started off right. I've learned over the years I need a lot of prayer. One on one side and one on the other. You pick. Okay. Father God, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Father, for the word that's going to go forth. We ask that you would anoint Doug, Father God. Fill him with your wisdom and your knowledge, Lord God. And I thank you, Father God, for preparing the hearts and the minds of your people in Jesus' name. All right, good. Father God, we just come before you in the name of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Lord God, for the purpose for which you brought Doug here tonight, Father. Mm -hmm. We thank you, Lord, that he's following in the footsteps of Jesus himself because Jesus was a great storyteller. And we thank you, Lord, that you have brought him to release stories. You have brought him to release truth. You have brought him, Lord God, to speak to us about the great awakening. And Father God, we just thank you for anointing him tonight. We thank you, Lord God, for filling his mouth with everything that you would have for him to say. In Jesus' name, we thank you, Lord, for the peace. And we thank you for the atmosphere that is charged and ready to receive. Amen. That's right. Amen. Good. Excellent. And I think that we should sing to the Lord together. Don't you? I mean, what better way to get started? So, what song do we have?
Lord, we hunger for your presence. We are desperate for your presence. Especially, Lord, when we see what you've done in the past, when we discover the power that you have poured out from on high in the past, we get a taste of what you've already done. Then we say, don't forget us, Lord. We want those things in our midst. We want you. We want nothing but you. It's all about you and your presence. We ask for your kingly, regal, glorious presence in our midst, in our cities, in this place, the east gate of the nation, Father. We're asking you to show us how it works, how it goes, what happens. How do we attract your presence? So Lord, we're asking you to teach us tonight about these things that surround your presence and your kingdom. And we pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Be seated. Troy asked me to explain that um, I do have a website and a lot of this is covered on my website. Um, it's uh, theclearing.us. www.theclearing.us. And uh, you'll find there a lot of material under the teachings glory through time. Then I also wanted to share with you, uh, as I didn't do last week, that I've written several books that have to do with the theme of spiritual awakening. One of them is Receiving the Power that I co-authored with Brad Long. And uh, it's really about how to open your life to the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But there's a lot in there about R.A. Torrey that I'll be covering tonight. Then there's um, two books on this area, the church at Richmond, but it's really the church in this whole area of Virginia. It goes back into the history of spiritual awakening in this area. And I sell these uh, together, these two books. Um, these are, I, I spent many years as a uh, leader of citywide prayer in Richmond, those came out of that leadership. Then um, God first allowed me to do research on spiritual awakening by leading me to a spiritual awakening that happened among native people in the Pacific Northwest. And what I discovered was many natives leaders heard directly from God about Jesus. That is one of the best kept secrets in American history. So I did a, an entire narrative about how that worked, how that happened in the Pacific Northwest, and that's what this one is about. And I try to keep them all at $10 so we don't have to trade pennies. All right, um, there have been a great many 
prophecies lately that we are about to enter into a third great awakening. And so that's why I felt it would be good if we studied those and then prepared for those. A lot of people don't even know what a great awakening is. So we've got two teachings that deal with God's history of great awakenings, what he's done so far. And really, Carla and my call to pray for the next great awakening happened when we learned of all the things God had done in the past, which frankly have been hidden from our eyes. So then God asked me to do research in all these things so that I could tell others what God has done in the past. And so I felt that in preparing for the next one, one of the best things that we could do is go over the history of the mighty deeds of God, which really have been hidden from our history books. And so um, each of these teachings kind of builds on the last one. Some of you were not here last time, so let me just quick cover that we went back to Acts 3, 19 to 21, which I have come to see as the most succinct description of God's plan for kingdom advance and the kingdom of God that we have in our Bible. And basically what that little passage does, which comes from Peter's second sermon, it, it gives a two-part process for the kingdom of God. First part, he's going to send times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. We call these great awakenings. And the unique thing about these periods throughout history is the presence of the Lord. There is a presence that comes. You and I have not experienced this. We've never experienced a great awakening because there hasn't been one in our lifetime. But there is a profound presence that covers large areas. George Otis covers something like that in his transformations videos, if you've ever seen those. But I look back in the past. I look at the history of it. He's looking at what's going on right now throughout the globe. But then there comes a shift in the progress of history. Jesus comes back to restore all things. That's what it says in Acts, 20, Acts 3.21. It's all about restoring all things to God's original intention for his creation. So there is no discrepancy between heaven and earth. And everything is in harmony. This is the job that Jesus has received to return to restore all things. Okay, so that's, we looked at that last time. But we're not quite at the place where he's come back yet, so we're in the previous time where it's all about times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. So, but we're calling them great awakenings. So I'm going to, uh, Troy, see if we can get this this slide up. 
Um, are you eating popcorn? Oh. <laughs> and, uh, Um, All right, my mentor introduced this kind of model or paradigm of history. And I'm hoping that Troy will get that up for you. But in the meantime, uh, you got to have real good eyes to see this. Um, Excellent, Troy, thank you. Even now, it's not that good, but... History is a cyclical affair, according to God. And you find that out from Psalm 106 and Psalm 78. Of course, that's the history of Israel. But then the presence of God came out of the inner sanctum and out into the nations. So why should history be any different in the nations? This is history from God's point of view. Okay, so it starts in a rebellion because people are basically rebellious against God. Can I hear an amen about that? Uh, You know, we aren't such nice dudes after all. Uh, It's hard to admit, but uh, we are capable of some really gross stuff. And so our country is kind of in this place Right now, it's a place of rebellion against God. A lot of people really just don't want anything to do with God. Whole political parties are saying that out in words. And so what we're, what we're seeing is rebellion. Now, the, the next part in the cycle is called retribution. That is a word that um, I've heard Dick teach this several times, and people have trouble with that word because they think they're saying, well, God is standing up in heaven with a big uh, two-by-four, and he's just waiting for people to make a mistake, and then he's going to whack them over the head, and that's retribution. But that is actually not the meaning of the word. It's only the false meaning of the word. So the true meaning of the word, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, It's deserved punishment for evil done and reward for good done, merited requital. So when we get to this place, it's like we're going to start experiencing the good or the hurt that our own actions have created. Um, For example... How about these uh, wealthy politicians who have created whole uh, rings of sex trafficking of children? Okay, when there's no merited requital, these things just keep going on and on and on. Merited requital is a loving act to get us back on track where we can move around the cycle into repentance unto life, is what the, what the book of Acts calls it, repentance unto life. We stop doing actions that will hurt ourselves and others, and behold, there's more peace in the land. And there is 
not just restoration, but we're calling it these days transformation. So that the, um, the awakenings are actually going to push us around the bottom of that circle and back up to the top. And that's the main goal of a, a spiritual awakening. There's miracles, there's healings, there's tongues, there's prophecy, but the main thing about it is getting us past this rebellion and out into a place where we are, as a nation, moving in a positive direction and restoring relationships with God and with each other. And we're learning how to love each other and God. Okay, so we had... I, I described the second great awakening in our country last week. Do you remember that? There have been four cycles in our country. The first one was the great awakening that happened in 1735. Then there was a falling away. I described that last week. A falling away, and then there was a second great awakening. We came around the circle and we came back to the top. And I described how it affected the whole country because of the presence of God in the land. Then there was another falling away. And then God did an amazing thing. A th another great awakening. It's not called the third great awakening, but it was a, a time of refreshing from the presence of the Lord in 1857. And they, the name associated with that is Jeremiah Lanfear. And he just started a prayer meeting in his Dutch Reformed church in New York City, and somehow the prayer caught on and spread all across the country for no reason except the presence of God. But there is a lesser-known southern half to this story, that's my favorite story in the whole history of these spiritual awakenings. And that's what happened in Charleston, South Carolina. Almost guarantee you haven't heard of this, but in its time, it's really powerful. So there was a guy named John Lafayette Gerardo. Anybody heard of him? John Lafayette Gerardo? My wife. <laughs> She's guilty. <laughs> and uh, he was a Presbyterian seminary graduate who had a heart for slaves, black slaves. So there was one congregation in all of the South, and it was started by Presbyterians, and it was specifically for black slaves. Somebody thought there ought to be a church for black slaves. Now, um, in the South... It was actually illegal for slaves to attend religious services or have religious meetings um, after Gabriel's rebellion. So it was a gutsy thing for the Presbyterians to start a, a church for slaves. And it was called Anson Street Presbyterian Church, and they're, they're putting John Lafayette Gerardo in there as the pastor. White pastor, everybody else is black. 
Well, um, Gerardo gets to his church and he discovers he's in the middle of some praying people. Now, I need to tell you another one of those hidden secrets. Um, there was a great prayer movement in slave camps. And that could be the reason why the people in this church knew how to pray. And uh, sometimes it's hard to get the exact truth, you know, in history, but it looks like Gerardo did not actually preach sermons in that church. He spent all of his time praying with those people. And then finally, one day, the story goes, it was like a shaft of light hit him in the forehead, and he knew God was saying, it's time to preach. So he said, Sunday we preach. Well, he came to church that next Sunday, and people were already streaming into the church by the hundreds. White people coming to a black slave church. And the power of God and the presence of God fell in that place, and instantly that church became a huge church. They had to sell that uh, Anson Street property, buy the biggest vacant church in the city, and it just it was a, it was a, a picture of revival. And so that was happening at the same time as the thing with Jeremiah Lamphere. Also, at the same time, revival broke out in Belfast, Ireland, and in Scotland. And these are the days of Charles Haddon Spurgeon in London. And so what you're starting to get is these seasons of spiritual awakening are masterminded by a God who is above it all. These are not just people who would like to have God show up. I'm trying to show you how this is part of God's total sovereign plan for the globe. You get this? I start getting excited about this. Then, a time of falling away, civil war, you know, all of that. Revival breaks out in 1905. Guess who's leading that one? William Seymour, black, one good eye, son of a slave. Do you suppose we might learn from God's decisions? His choosing... He's trying to tell us something. Do you see that? And so, William Seymour himself, he said two things happened during that particular uh, revival season. The blood of Jesus washed away the color line. And it absolutely did for three years. Everybody that came to that place was bonded in love, didn't matter what race you were. And then the other thing was tongues and the gifts of the Spirit poured out, I mean, just am amazingly. 
But the churches that came out of that were not able to maintain the first part. Do you suppose we might be able to listen to God enough so that we could maintain both of those things that God was trying to teach his church? All right. I've just given you four chapters in the book of Kingdom Advance. Chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. There are chapters leading up to that, and there are chapters leading away from that and up to the present day. So I'm going to give you what happened during the whole time. Because as we look at what God is about to do, it's going to help us to understand everything that God has done and what he's about. So the kingdom of God really started when Jesus ascended to the Father from the Mount of Olives. His ascension has been almost completely ignored by Christians, but it's when the kingdom began. It's when he received power from the Father. And then the power was not worldly power and might, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit. I think most of you know that. It's not by power nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6. And Jesus and everything he did and the early church, the apostolic era, they lived that out. But in the fourth century, just hang on here with me and I'll, I'll explain all of this. In the fourth century, the church decided to change that and move to the other side of the equation. And the church invested heavily in power and might, not so much in the Holy Spirit. So now we're going to talk about power and might Christians. The power and might church. And these two churches have been at odds with each other ever since. And eventually, the power and might church became the normal church. And the Holy Spirit was considered weird. So power and might takes over as the main paradigm for the Christian church. And another 700 years go by, at the end of which the Pope becomes the richest man in the world. God is going to intervene in this situation and begin to pull the church back into the original vision. Not by power, nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. But it's going to be a slow, painful process because people do not like change. And it's all so weird. Let's just be frank about it. It's just weird. The things the Holy Spirit does are sometimes... I mean, do I hear an amen about this? 
sometimes just weird because it's God. It's not our ways. It's not the way we think. It's not the way we act. It's not the way we do. It's strange to us. We get used with each other. We get used to having it be just like we want. Then God shows up, and it's not that way at all. It's, it's going to take a lot of work to get the church back out of that, pull it out of that way, which seems normal. So he started it, seriously started that, in Scotland in the 16th century with a group of people called, do you know what they're called? Presbyterians. <laughs> These people were wild and radical in their time because the king showed up in Scotland. Not in the highlands, but in the lowlands. From Edinburgh over to Troon and Ayr in the uh, west coast. And people were meeting the king. The presence is what we're talking about here. The presence of God. Affecting, bringing regeneration to thousands and thousands of people. And most people had no idea about this. It's a sovereign move of God. That's why the people, the, the reformers, believed so strongly in the sovereignty of God because they experienced it. They didn't deserve any of this. So, wow. Here about 600 years ago, things began to change. And at first people thought, well, this is just something God did in Scotland. But then he's going to show the cycle pattern. It's going to become waves. Fifty years later, it happens again. And again, and again, and again. Scotland, down into England, there's going to be not just Presbyterians, but Quakers. All kinds of people. Baptists. Uh, Puritans. Eventually Methodists. Each one of these denominations started in a wave of the presence of God. Now, follow me here. There was a king in Scotland named James VI. James VI didn't like what was happening in Scotland because he suddenly discovered there was a rival king. And he didn't like having the king's people, namely the Reformed clergy, the Scottish Reformed clergy, telling him when he was doing something wrong. That's what those guys were doing, you know. James VI, you know, absconded with some money that was destined for the poor, and he used it for himself. That was wrong, and they told him it was wrong. So he put him in prison, and he sent him off to France, and he did all kinds of things, mean things. And so here you've got the beginning of a hundred years of intense persecution between the lineage of James 
And these successive waves of awakening and the leaders of, that, of those awakenings. James VI of Scotland became James I of England. The first king to occupy two thrones, unite the whole island together. We are in a county named after this man and next to a river named for this man. Most of us think of James as being a really cool Christian guy. He was not. N-O-T, not. He started a lineage, a dynasty that persecuted more Christians than any other dynasty that I know of. And so what happened? All those people who were being persecuted by James, Charles, guess what? I live in Charles City, named for this guy, and Charles II, because they are power and might Christians. Do you get this? So they are going to settle people in Virginia and to the south. And all the people that have experienced awakening and are, have been persecuted by those guys are going to settle in the north. These are the people who know how to pray for spiritual awakening because they've come from that kind of background. The ones in the south don't know how to do that. In fact, they are dead set against anything like a spiritual awakening and don't want those people to come down and contaminate them. That is why the Great Awakening was a purely northern affair. What do we learn about this? If you're praying for an awakening, it might actually happen. But you can be sure if you're not praying for it, it won't happen. No matter if it's the time of God for doing an awakening or not, if you're not praying for it, it will not happen in your area. How many of you would like to have the presence of God in our area? <clears throat> I thought so. Even when it's a time for the third great awakening, if the people in an area don't want it and aren't praying for it, it won't happen to you. See what I'm saying? That's what we've learned from the history of Great Awakenings. A lot of this is in my book, The Richmond Awakening, the, the tension between North and South and the whole idea of what Christianity is. Okay. Now we're going to go on because after Azusa, more chapters. There was a guy named R.A. Torrey. And by the way, did you know that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was taught by Charles Finney <laughs> in 1820s? It was also taught by D.L. Moody later on in the century. 
and it was taught by R.A. Torrey. D.L. Moody and R.A. Torrey were together at the Chicago Bible Institute in Chicago, and they taught on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody died on the last month of the last century. So that as a new century began, R.A. Torrey took over the Chicago Bible Institute and renamed it the Moody Bible Institute. All right, and the first thing that R.A. Torrey received from the Lord as president of the Moody Bible Institute was start praying for a worldwide great awakening. And so he started these driving, regular, long prayer meetings for the entire student body and everybody in the school, praying towards something that nobody had ever heard of before, a whole world experiencing revival as the presence of God. And after a year or a year and a half, someone came, how long are you going to do this? He said, until it happens. Praying until. I had mentioned that last week. Well, uh, after two years of this, God spoke again to R.A. Torrey, and it said, it's time for you to put feet to your prayers. I want you to be a world revivalist. And I'm going to, I'm going to lead you out. So R.A. Torrey left all of his duties at the Moody Bible Institute. I mean, the guy was the president of a major school, and he goes for a year off on this tour. And he starts out in New Zealand. He preaches Jesus and the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Huge throngs come, and it's revival. He goes to Australia. Same thing happens. He goes to India. Same thing happens. And the, the, the uh, leaders of the church in London get news of this, and they say, we got to have this guy come here. So they invited him to London. This is uh, the son of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the next generation. Um, this is 190. He started in 1902, so now we're up to 1903. And uh, but he do, he's not led to do any preaching or or much of anything, just a little bit of preaching in local churches, but not a revival ministry in London at all. Instead, the Lord leads him to Edinburgh. He goes up to Scotland, he preaches there, and in limited ways, revival breaks out. In Edinburgh, he goes to Glasgow, then he goes to Belfast, and just everywhere he goes, it's greater, it's greater, it's bigger. Then he, uh, he, then he goes to Wales. Wales is the hardest place of them all. Just totally consumed with that religious spirit, people just playing church. You know what I mean? And, and he, you know, he just, 
can't seem to break through, so he, he organizes prayer meetings. Praying every day. Starts with a few, gets bigger, bigger. Eventually he leaves. He goes on and he does his London uh, tour and huge throngs, huge throngs. You should see the pictures. But it's, that, it's those prayer meetings that he started in Wales that eventually turned into the great Welsh revival. I mean, the presence of God was so strong in Wales that the, the police didn't have anything to do. And so they formed themselves into quartets to go around to churches and sing, you know, songs to the Lord, you know. That was all they could think of to do. I mean, this is real. Um, so now, there was a group of Presbyterian Welsh people who felt like God, God was leading them to go to India. And they went to some head-hunting tribes in the north of India in the Cassia Hills. Within a year, all of those tribes had converted to Christ. How do you, how do you explain this? It was an extraordinary thing happening in the mission field, and uh, everybody was just astonished. And to this day, those people are uh, on-fire Presbyterians. Well, this got into the, the mission agencies, you know, and there was a guy, a missionary, who visited there, and then he went to Korea. And he told the Korean missionaries who were Presbyterian and Methodist um, what was happening in Cassia Hills. And the, the missionaries in Korea, this is in Pyongyang, at Central Presbyterian Church, they said, well, if, if God can do that with them, why can't he do that with us? Let's just start praying. We're going to start praying for this. So they had late afternoon prayer every day that God would do for them what he had done for Cassia Hills in India. And in 1907, in January of 1907, the Spirit of God fell at Central Presbyterian Church. And man, the stories that come out of there would curl your hair. It was sheer power. Power to bring people around that circle and up to the other side. Uh, if you want to find out, you go to my website and go to, the, there's, there's a teaching on that. I, I read some of the, the um, testimonies. And the, the presence of God spread throughout Korea. Why are 60% of the churches in Korea still to this day Presbyterian? It's because the Presbyterians were the ones who prayed. Pure and simple. Well, there was a Presbyterian. <laughs> I know I'm Presbyterian. It sounds like I'm being, you know, kind of... I don't know what the word is. Prejudiced. I'm not. I, this, this is just... God has used the Scottish people... They've been the ones carrying this 
awakening vision so often. So here's a guy named Jonathan Goforth. If you want to be a missionary, you should have a name, Jonathan Goforth. This is a perfect name for a missionary. Well, Jonathan Goforth had been in Manchuria, which is to the west of Korea, for years. And he'd endured the Boxer Rebellion, which was an anti-Western, anti-missionary movement. He'd actually been stabbed and attacked by these people. And he considered leaving, but no, he stayed. You know, I've mentioned this. A lot of times, leaders of Great Awakenings have to go through trials and tough times, testing. But he, he survived the test. He kept on going. And then he went over to Korea because he heard something was going on over there. And he caught the presence of God. And he actually wrote a book called When the Spirit's Fire Swept Korea. Then he went back home to Manchuria. And he said, I knew nothing about how to do a revival or anything like that. But everywhere he went, the same thing broke out in Manchuria. The presence of God. I don't know, somehow people can carry the presence of God. It just breaks out. No reason, no training. They can just go from one place to another and there it breaks out again. That happens quite a bit. If you study the Great Awakenings. That's what happened with him and the stories. And how Manchuria just filled with the gospel. People coming to Christ by the thousands. And um, so now we're to China. And I'm coming to the end here. There's a guy named Mark Ma. Who had a a sense that God wanted him to carry the gospel to the West. And he started to call together a little band of Chinese people, mostly peasants, just nobodies. And then he, he, he talked with this little band of people. This is 1943. And uh, I'm just going to read this story from the book Back to Jerusalem. On the morning of May 23, as I fasted and prayed about the, the name of the band that the Lord, the, the Lord revealed, the verse of Scripture to my heart, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then the end shall come, Matthew 24, 14. I said, O Lord, what does this mean? And the Lord replied, It is this. I not only want the Chinese church to assume responsibility for taking the gospel to Xinjiang, but I want you to bring to completion the commission to preach the gospel to all the world. I asked, O oh Lord, has not the gospel already been preached to all the world? The Lord said, Since the beginning at Pentecost, the pathway of the gospel has spread for the greater part in a westward direction from Jerusalem to Antioch to Europe, from Europe to America, then to the east, southeast of China to the northwest, until today from Gansu on westward, it can be said that there is no firmly established church. You may go westward from Gansu, 
preaching the gospel all the way back to Jerusalem, causing the light of the gospel to complete the circle around this dark world. I said, O Lord, who are we that we can carry such a great responsibility? And the Lord answered, I want to manifest my power through those who of themselves have no power. That was the beginning of the Back to Jerusalem movement. And it is going. Uh, could you show that other slide? The uh, last time we were in Jerusalem, uh, we met a Chinese guy on the right. He was a leader of the Back to Jerusalem movement. And he was looking for property in Jerusalem to construct the headquarters of the Back to Jerusalem movement. He was just there for a few days, and we happened to, to catch him. It's one of those meetings that only the Lord can put together. And so... Uh, there we were in the presence of this guy. We, we gave him some, some teaching on a flash drive. And I know they're using it. And uh, what this shows is this is real. This is happening right now. I mean, it, the whole missions of the... See, the church has spread the gospel in all directions. But the times of refreshing have gone mostly in a westerly direction. I don't know why. I'm just reporting it to you. And so we've seen that whole, I've, I've given it to you tonight, the whole way around the world, and it's now coming back to Jerusalem. So you ask yourself, what time is it? We're getting close. That's what I'm trying to tell you. We're getting close. And here's evidence of it. You can quote prophecies and everything, but if you look at the power of God and the advance of the kingdom of God through times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord, you see they've gone right around the earth and they're coming back to the beginning. Isn't this exciting? It's exciting to me, I'm telling you. There's something going on right now in the mind of God, and he's getting us ready. And one of those things that he's getting ready is a third great awakening. Because the enemy is going to spread darkness, but the Lord is not at all threatened by that. And the Lord is about to give his church power and authority like we have never had it before. Leading right up to the return of the king. Now, I, I think you're as excited about this as I am. So, just two things. If we want to have the third great awakening, the Lord is throwing the ball into our court. 
It's not like God just says, well, I'm going to do this for you. Because he created a system whereby his church is supposed to receive authority from Jesus the King. And we, it's like he has his hand on the iron scepter and he's putting our hand on it too. Because he's just decided he's not going to do stuff unless he can do it with us. And we have this whole history of great awakenings. Every single one of them started because the Lord called to his royal priesthood. And they said, yes, we are going to go for it. We are going to pray for this. And we are not going to quit until. It's got to be that kind of determination. Because you can have all kinds of discouragements when you're going for it. It's not always easy. It's not always exciting. But it is the call of God. And there's no purpose like it. It sure beats playing bridge. So I'm calling to you guys. Maybe you want to join the army. Join up. And uh, so I think it's time for us to sing a song. And then, I don't know, maybe we could pray a little bit. It's been an hour. I'm just right on the money here. I said it would be an hour. So if any of you guys need to leave, I'm done. But we're only beginning. You see what I mean? There must be more.